0: Hello and welcome to McLean's on the Hill. I'm Cormac McSweeney, Parliament Hill Bureau Chief for City News and Rogers Radio. This weekend, we remember. The country honors those who have fought and died for our country. But some are raising the alarm about ongoing problems for those who fought and were injured in their service. We're joined on the show by retired Major Mark Campbell, who lost both legs in an IED attack. He speaks with us about his experiences in Afghanistan and why he's pressuring the government to bring back lifelong pensions for injured vets. From tax havens to marijuana taxes, John Geddes and Paul Wells are here for the McLean's panel to discuss some of the top stories over the last week in politics. We kick off the second half of our show highlighting the cover story for the latest issue of Maclean's magazine. It's a look ahead at the next two years of the Trudeau government. We'll break down the issues and hear from ministers like Ralph Goodale, Jane Philpott and Jim Carr. And finally, Maclean's has handed out the hardware with the Parliamentarian of the Year Awards, where the best of the best in the House of Commons are honored. We'll tell you who the winners are and why there was a surprise finish. For your politics, for your power. Welcome to The Hill. This weekend, Canadians will pause and remember the sacrifices made by soldiers who fought for the freedoms we all enjoy. From coast to coast to coast, Canadians wear red poppies and honor the fallen who bravely put on a uniform and died in service to their country. But every year around this time, discussions usually go beyond acts of remembrance. And a spotlight is shone on the current challenges facing our veterans. This year is no different. On Thursday, several injured vets held a press conference to put pressure on the Trudeau government to follow through on its promise to improve their pensions. One of those people was retired Major Mark Campbell, who joins me now by phone. I'm glad to be here. Before we get on to the policy discussions and uh, mm-hmm. the issues that you have with the Trudeau government, it is Remembrance Weekend, and I'm just wondering, you know, what, what, what goes through your mind uh, as a veteran, as somebody who served for our country and was injured in the process?
1: Um, well, the thoughts that go through my mind um, are, are, are specifically focused on uh, those I know who have lost their life in the service of Canada, um, and that those, those, those figures are in the double digits. So uh, for me, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's just a personal time of, of reflection.
0: You've lived through some terrible moments. You've lost colleagues, uh, friends, and you yourself were injured in service to the country. Can you give our listeners a bit of an idea of how, of how difficult it is to go through moments like that?
1: Um, yeah, you know, I mean, they do say that time heals all wounds, and there's, there's, a, there's a certain truth to that. However, uh, when you have a, a focal day like Remembrance Day once a year, i mean it does tend to to focus one's thoughts and, uh, and and bring it all home so i mean i i just know from from years past that it's it, you know it's it's the emotional baggage is definitely there it, it weighs heavy on the heart and uh, to think of all those people it's like a slideshow going through your head of all these people you know in my case over a 32 year career who have lost their lives some in accidents many more in combat um, it's just, uh, the, the toll actually, you know, over that period of time becomes pretty significant. And, uh, I mean, I can, I can, I can, I've got, I've got pictures in my head that'll, you know, uh, would fill 30 or 40 caskets. I feel each and every one of those losses to, to, to greater or lesser degree, depending on how well I knew the individuals, some were, some are actually close friends and, and peers. And, and it's, yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's hard to, it's hard to think about, but, you have to think about it in order to to pay proper homage and, and respect um, to those that we've lost.
0: And what happened to you? You you lost your legs. Is that correct?
1: That's correct. Yeah, I was uh, I was mentoring the Afghan National Army, um, who were quite fledgling at the time, and trying to bring them along, uh, professionalize them, and then we did that by providing them on the job uh, training in, in combat operations in Kandahar Province. So uh, I was on a dismounted village sweeping operation, clear, looking for uh, improvised explosive devices, uh, manufacturing facilities. And uh, we certainly found improvised explosive device, just not necessarily the way we choose to find them. Um, we were uh, doing a village sweep, and the bad guys had set up an ambush. Uh, my organization was on a bit of a rescue mission to, uh, to help out a Canadian on, uh, to, our, to our right side who had been uh, injured with his organization. They had to get them out. And the only way to get them out was for them to to stop fighting and 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 focus on um, evacuation. So we had to take over the fight. And as we were on our way to to take over that fight, we were ambushed. And the uh, the way they do that is uh a lot of times they'll they'll use an improvised explosive device on a trigger. They waited for me, they they saw me in a different uniform, they saw that I was taller than the Afghan, they saw that I was talking on the radio, so I was leadership. And they waited until I walked across uh, the same piece of ground that countless others had already walked across that day. And uh, when I stepped on that piece of dirt, they, they blew me up and then hit us from three sides with machine guns and and, and RPGs. And so it was ugly. It, uh, um, the troops were brilliant uh, under fire, uh, under intense fire. They, uh, they they jumped on me within seconds of me yelling for help and uh, got the tourniquets on that stopped uh, a life-threatening bleed out of both legs. My femoral arteries were both pumping away and uh, then my my senior medic saved my life by putting some rescue flow into me that tricked my body into believing i had more blood pressure than i did so that i could last until they got me to the hospital it took about 90 minutes over hill and dale on a crazy carpet stretcher to uh to evacuate me to uh, a secure area for the helicopter and then it was a 30-minute flight to kandar airfield so about two hours all up with no painkiller uh thanks to the uh, blood pressure and then i promptly died when they got me to the, the operating table they brought me back Died again in Germany, uh, where I was in the ICU, in and they managed to bring me back there. And uh, after about four months of surgeries and rehab, here I am.
0: Just a, a chilling story, but one that, unfortunately, so many soldiers have gone through before. Mm-hmm. And you did mention that mm-hmm. at Remembrance Day, you know, there there's a lot of focus on the stories and and the experiences that you've gone through uh, for a lot of other Canadians the focus is once again thrust on to the issues that um veterans like yourself have gone through since coming back after Correct. serving your country being injured not not everything is is no. as it should be and, and you you've been raising concerns uh, because the federal liberals have promised to bring back the Lifelong pensions that were in place before things changed under the Harper government, and that hasn't happened yet. So can you break down what the pension issues are for our listeners?
1: Yeah, absolutely. The The biggest problem we have right now is that because of the legislation which was passed with all-party support on the 1st of April 2006, what we've got are, are two completely different standards of financial compensation for veterans injured in the Afghanistan war and, and thereafter. Those who were injured prior to 1st uh, of April 2006 receive a, a lifelong tax-free uh, disability-based medical pension. And uh, it, you know, it's, a, it's a healthy sum, and it leaves alone their military pension, which they can collect, which they paid into for their entire career. Of course, they can collect that separately from their, their tax-free medical pension, so two income streams. Um, if you were injured after the first of April two thousand and six, instead of a lifelong uh, pension, you receive a one-time uh, tax-free lump sum to a maximum of three hundred sixty thousand dollars. The average payout is about forty thousand um, dollars. So a maximum of three hundred sixty thousand dollars, and then if uh, if you're able to if you're deemed able to transition. To civilian life and and have a successful civilian career, if your disability degree of disability allows that, then that's where it ends. You get a you get a lump sum and a handshake. Um, if you're so disabled that you're not expected to make a successful transition to a civilian military career or civilian career, I should say, then um, what will happen is they will provide you with some income replacement benefits, but uh, um, I would argue that those those benefits are are, are inadequate and they're about forty percent less than you would have received in financial compensation over your lifetime had you been under the Pension Act. So a uh, significant financial disparity uh, based on that that, that arbitrary one, uh, 1 April 2006 date, which I, I'll remind you was in the middle of our, 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 our war in Afghanistan, which ran from 2002 till 2014. So what we've got now is, is a ludicrous situation where you've got two soldiers The same injuries, same war, fundamentally different financial compensation for them and their families. Now, how is that right? How is that fair? It's not, and it has to be fixed. And so far, the government of Canada has dragged its feet trying to fix this problem. They keep kicking the can down the road, promising more details on a lifelong pension. Well, the clock's ticking. They said by the end of this year, it's now the end of this year, so let's hear it.
0: So there is still time before the end of the year. Uh, since you spoke out on Thursday and held a news conference to mm-hmm. alert Canadians to the issue that, uh, as, as you put it, uh, that the government is dragging its feet on this, have you heard? And warned
1: the government itself to send a message to the government. I, 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 I view what we did yesterday as a public service announcement. And, and I think we did the government a favor by just coming forward and saying, look, if you don't get it right this time, you've blown it. And you've blown it completely. The continued credibility of the Prime Minister the Government of Canada and Veterans Affairs Canada hinges on the Government of Canada getting the Pension for Life option right. Because if they don't get it right, that's it. I'm afraid we've reached the end of whatever tenuous relationship there was between veterans and, and their
0: government. Have you heard back from the government since you spoke out? No. It's been clear in the past that the issue of standing off with veterans or not following through on promises was a big thorn in the side for the previous conservative government. So sure was. <laughs> you, and, and, you, and you're basically saying here uh, that if if the Liberals don't follow through on this promise, they are going to suffer politically. Is that the message sure that you am. want to send?
1: Yep, that's exactly what I'm saying. Uh, let, look, let's, let's be honest here. Uh, let, 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 let's cut to the chase. There are over 600,000 Canadian veterans alive in Canada. You multiply that by the number of family members and friends who are also single-issue voters, particularly when they see a close friend or relative who's been disabled and is suffering financially. And now you have over a million strong single-issue voters voting bloc in Canada. And I think we demonstrated our our ability to influence the election during the last one. I mean, the the demise of the Conservative Party uh, was in large part, I, I would argue, particularly in eastern Canada, due to the Anything But Conservative campaign waged by uh, eastern Canadian veterans. So to to underestimate us, well, the government does that at its peril.
0: Now, over the last two budgets, the government has you know carved out about $6.3 billion in, in additional funding for <laughs> veterans. Uh, how much more would changing the pensions cost to the government when it's looking at the numbers?
1: I don't know. I can't tell you. What I can tell you is that the cost of the government is going to be everything if they don't get it right. You can throw $10 billion at the problem, but if it's all disappearing into a quagmire called Veterans Affairs Canada and none of it's squeaking out the bottom end of the icing machine to get to the guys that need it, the guys and girls that need it, well, the, the sums are
0: irrelevant. That was retired Major Mark Campbell discussing his push to keep the Trudeau government at its word for improving the pensions of injured vets. The Veterans Affairs Minister, Seamus O'Regan, did not do any interviews this week because he has been recovering from surgery, but he did release a statement saying the government is still committed to delivering a Pension for Life option. He also pointed out the government has reopened veterans' offices and invested about $6 billion into veteran services. Still to come on the show, the McLean's panel discusses tax havens and pot taxes. We hear from three ministers as we dive into the latest cover story from Macleans, looking at the next two years of the Trudeau government. And we bring you the surprises and highlights of the Parliamentarian of the Year awards. Welcome back to McLean's on the Hill. I'm Cormac McSweeney, Parliament Hill Bureau Chief for City News and Rogers Radio. Coming up on the show... We're going to outline the cover story for the latest issue of Maclean's, which looks at the next two years of the Trudeau government, and will tell you why it was a revolt of the backbenchers at this year's Parliamentarian of the Year awards. But first... It's now time for the McLean's panel, and I'm joined, as always, by McLean's Ottawa Bureau Chief John Gettis and McLean Senior Writer Paul Wells. Thanks very much for being here, guys. Good to Hi. be here. Okay, so we started off the week again talking about this issue of tax havens and tax problems that are uh, now dogging the Trudeau government because of the Paradise Papers, and mm. the issue is that, uh, uh, well, one of the chief uh, f- liberal fundraisers, Stephen Bronfman has been named in the Paradise Papers. He denies he's done anything wrong, but it's created a big uh, political hubbubaloo. Uh, John, you've been uh, sort of looking into this issue and and speaking with uh, Senator Percy Down on the problems around this, and he's putting the blame on on the CRA.
2: Well, Percy Down is a longtime critic of the Canada Revenue Agency on this kind of thing. There have been leaks of this sort in the past, and he basically says, we've never seen any decisive action from the Canada Revenue Agency on, basically dragging people into court who've been evading taxes abroad. This is devilishly complex stuff. I have had a, a lot of exchanges with CRA this week, and there are a couple of things worth pointing out that are, I mean, they're technical. One is that there are some new global agreements on reporting on bank transactions. They're only coming into effect in 2018. And so the CRA keeps pointing to things like that and saying, be patient, the evidence of significant, cra- a significant crackdown on Canadians who are hiding uh, income overseas and not paying tax—that's that's coming. They claim they've already made progress in some in some past files, but it's it's hard to measure that progress. It's buried in CRA data. They're not very transparent on when they've actually cracked uh, someone's offshore t- bank account and when it's other kinds of tax avoidance. It's hard to disentangle that. So the bottom line on all, and I think Senator Down is pretty per- persuasive on this, is that as these episodes mount, Paradise Papers, Panama Papers, uh, Swiss bank account leaks, Liechtenstein bank account leaks. As this stuff goes on and on, at some point they have to show some evidence that they're actually cracking down, that people are going to court, that people are being big fines, the so sorts of things that would essentially be a disincentive for, for people to go on uh, hiding from the tax man this way. So far I, I'm, I'm with him in the sense that I haven't seen any really clear evidence of that and I can only hope that next year or two we'll see something more definitive, something more dramatic on that front. And
0: Paul, how politically damaging is this for the Trudeau government when they've been saying they're going to go after the wealthy, they're they're going to crack down on tax havens, there are criticisms that they're not doing it, their chief liberal fundraiser is named in these most recent papers, and then the prime minister before any CRA review is complete says uh, he believes this chief Liberal
3: fundraiser. And incidentally, the last email to Liberal supporters from that chief fundraiser in late October, before all of this hullabaloo, uh, the premise of that email was he was getting whooped uh, by the Conservative Party, uh, nearly two to one in donations for the year. And could people please uh, see their way clear to helping the Liberal Party out? So if the fact that the guy's name is Bronfman is problematical... And he's not that effective as a fundraiser. I'm a little curious why he's still there. Mm. Um, More broadly, this points out the liberals, the Trudeau liberals, specifically the Justin Trudeau liberals, tortured relationship with the very rich. Um, There's not a scrap of evidence that Stephen Bronfman or any Bronfman or Claridge Investments did anything wrong or against the rules. What they, uh, you know, in some way, or Leo Kolber in some way seems to have done was to so organize their, their, their finances as to pay the smallest amount of taxes. About half the Liberals' economic program is based on the assumption that people with money will organize their finances so as to maximize their returns. That's the entire premise of the infrastructure bank, which is supposed to pay hundreds of billions of dollars to build magic monorails from coast to coast. Is that is that uh, foreign pension funds will see no better place to sink their money than Canada, even though they're foreign, and nobody is suggesting there would be anything wrong with that. But the Liberals have also built this kind of uh, other-dimensional myth world in which, uh, in which, if you've got money and you tr- and you do your best to hang on to it, you're doing something wrong uh, and injurious to society, and the Liberal Party's coming at you. And it, I would suggest that until they've uh, uh, until they reconcile that basic. Marxists would call it false consciousness. Uh, 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 Until they figure out what they think about money, they're going to be opening themselves up to uh, pretty facile opposition attacks and to a lot of suspicion from from taxpayers and voters.
0: And finally, the last topic I just wanted to touch on with you guys is the issue of taxing marijuana, the government has come out and said, hey, we're going to go through with that plan that we pitched to the premiers uh, after all and we're going to put in the excise tax and then we're going to split the profits 50-50 with the provinces, but it's something that The provinces said they didn't like when they sat down with the feds and they heard this pitch from Finance Minister Bill Morneau. They said, we want more because we're footing most of the bill here. Um, Do you think that this is going to create even more tensions with the premiers as they sit down and discuss this? Or do you think the like it or lump it strategy might work as it has with other issues where like health funding, where they just simply held out and uh, the feds sort of got their way in the end?
3: One of the smaller, one of the kind of maybe less consequential surprises of Justin Trudeau uh, as prime minister is how little he likes to do federal-provincial relations. Mm. He's supposed to be a guy who got along well with everybody, uh, a, a charming guy, uh, a, a fairly effective guy in a meeting. And yet uh, he's done more of his federal-provincial relations by conference call than any prime minister I can recall. And he's, and, and about as much as Stephen Harper, he has preferred to just announce uh, his plan and the, and the provinces can like it or lump it um uh one further my theme today has been incoherence uh justin trudeau basically just shattered his uh, heritage minister's credibility in quebec on the on on his insistence that he would never tax netflix netflix because this government doesn't increase taxes on the middle class well who do you think smokes marijuana and uh and yet this government is going to be taxing pot that's the
2: uh, that's a good one the uh, uh just on the fed prov stuff, you know the, I suspect that they may still cave on some of those revenues Cormac. I mean this is they they've sort of announced uh a consultation period till I think december seventh yeah december seventh so we'll we'll see whether or not they're still waiting for you know some kind of counter position from the from the province of that, but more broadly you know it's it, we're coming into a big year on Fed prov stuff they've got to finalize. Uh, the marijuana stuff, which is very much a Fed Prov file. They've got to get deals hammered out on infrastructure with all the provinces. The big part of the infrastructure stuff from 2015 election still hasn't been settled, right? They still have to have bilateral deals in that. They've got a number of other files on which it's really the Fed Prov dynamic comes in. So I think one of the cool things to watch for this year will be, Paul talks about the Prime Minister maybe not being quite as, as as much of that Prime Minister as we like, he's going to have to think of a way to to communicate with and cooperate with the provinces on that stuff in the coming year in quite a big way. All right, I'd love to chat more, Mm. but we're
0: unfortunately out of time. Thank you very much. McLean's Ottawa Bureau Chief John Geddes and McLean's Senior Writer Paul Wells.
2: Thanks. Thanks, Cormac.
0: Still to come on McLean's on the Hill, three different cabinet ministers weigh in on what the next two years may hold for the Trudeau government, and we'll bring you the highlights and surprises from this year's Parliamentarian of the Year Awards. Welcome back to McLean's on the Hill. I'm Cormac Sweeney, Parliament Hill Bureau Chief for City News and Rogers Radio. Still to come on the show, we let you know which MPs came out victorious in the Parliamentarian of the Year awards and why the big winner of the night was a bit of a surprise. But first, it's been two years since the Trudeau cabinet was sworn in at Rideau Hall on November 4th, 2015. That makes this effectively the midway point in the Liberal government's majority mandate. And Maclean's Ottawa Bureau Chief John Geddes has a cover story in this month's issue of the magazine that's just out, looking at the Trudeau government as it pivots into the two years left before the 2019 election. And John Geddes is here to talk about the story. Thank you very much for being here, John. Oh,
2: thanks, Credit, Glad to be here.
0: Okay, so at this midway point, the government's kind of hit a rough patch, and Finance Minister Bill Morneau's problems, his small business tax reforms, uh, came under a lot of heat. There are allegations that he's in a conflict of interest. Uh, it's dominating question period these days. Uh, but it's put the Liberals on the defensive. Is this a temporary hit or a symptom of some deeper problems?
2: Mm, yeah, I guess that is at the heart of my story. I I don't really try to answer that definitively. But what I do point to is that uh, more nose woes and, and other stumbles of Trudeau cabinet ministers, they tend to make us sometimes forget the bigger picture. Th- this is a government with a lot going on. I mean, it really is a packed agenda.
0: Like what's on that agenda?
2: Well, you know, just to mention a few things. So there's a landmark national housing strategy is coming soon, something that the federal government of any stripe hasn't tried for decades. There's deep criminal justice reforms. They're in the works. There have been roundtables held in every province on that. We've got overhauls of the broadcasting and telecommunications and copyright laws. And, you know, on on things that people are more likely to have heard about or thought about, we're still waiting for the details of the infrastructure spending. That was a a big part of the 2015 campaign that, you know, the the platform. And there's marijuana legalization underway and carbon pricing. You know, these are all policy pushes that have to be brought to fruition sometime in 2018. Okay, aside from marijuana, which is obviously
0: a populist sort of move, Mm -hmm. uh, none of the other ones really seem like the thing that Canadians are saying. Yeah, that sounds great. That's amazing. So how is the government going to sell this? How can it really make this work politically?
2: Yeah, on that one, maybe we should play some tape. I brought some clips. I, I interviewed Public Safety Minister Ralph Goodale Arguably Trudeau's most experienced minister, so the gray hair in the cabinet. And I asked him a little bit about that exact thing, like how how do the Trudeau's kind of position themselves politically with all the stuff they've got on the agenda? Why don't we want to listen to Goodale?
4: After an election, there's always a uh, a burst of uh, of enthusiasm and uh, and popularity, uh, and uh, and we enjoyed a a long period of that. Uh, and then the question comes after you've. Uh, got yourself established and taken those first few steps um, then uh, uh, what do you do to uh, invest your political capital uh, in, in ways that, uh, uh, that accomplish the vision that you laid out in the, in, in the platform. Hmm. It's, uh, it's one thing to uh, constantly play it safe uh, and just uh, accumulate the political capital uh, but then at the end of the term, you look back and say, all right, uh, what did we accomplish as the result of that? Hmm. Um, and uh, when expe- expectations are high, you have to work very hard to, uh, to uh, fulfill those, uh, those, those hopes and dreams. Hmm. Um, but, but focusing on those hopes and dreams and working in that direction is a far better course than saying to people, don't have any expectations, lower your sights, settle for grinding mediocrity. Um, we, were, we were delivering a far more positive message and yes, that, uh, that raised a lot of, uh, of high hopes and we have to work darn hard to, uh, to demonstrate uh, that we're getting there. Will we get to uh, uh, the perfect finish line in one term? No, uh, but I think we will get to a point uh, and are already well-launched down that course uh, where people will say, we like this direction, we like the progress so far, uh, we've got to hold their feet to the fire.
0: So, John, basically Goodale is suggesting you you basically have to accept slumps in popularity as the price of spending political capital on trying to get stuff done.
2: Yeah, exactly, exactly. And on some files, it's easy to see the political upside, on others, not so easy. Um, and in that category of files where it's, I think it's hard to make make sort of political hate of them. You'd have to include Indigenous issues, a really big subject for the Trudeau government. It's so complex and so deeply rooted. I asked for an interview with Indigenous Services Minister Jane Philpott about her portfolio. I think it's, it's really interesting to hear how she frames the, you know the challenge she specifically faces you know, on what needs to be done and on what she needs to show progress.
5: There are some issues on which it's easier to measure results and uh, therefore it's uh, perhaps um, more incumbent to, to make sure that those uh, those results are, are visible to Canadians and in that category I would put things like drinking water advisories where uh, you know we've lifted 26 but we have, still dozens to go Uh, we have a clear path to get there and it's one of the areas I dig into uh, uh, on a regular basis and we have a firm commitment to making sure that they're all lifted by 2021 but there's also work that we know we can't finish in two years so to a certain extent you're also setting the stage and figuring out how you can set things up so that you'll be well prepared to take the next step
0: okay so it's it's kind of an interesting mix of putting down markers on Measurable progress, and then also setting long, longer-term momentum.
2: Right, that's right. And 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 it's a it's a it's a mix of particular to her. There's something like it in other departments. Um, I was interested in in the pipelines issue because that's been such a hard political issue for governments to 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 deal with. Um, And there you've got uh, a sort of a, a dichotomy, right? You've got entrenched opinion against pipelines. You know very strong opinion especially in Alberta and Saskatchewan that they're absolutely essential so you wonder how do you do political strategy in that in that polarized environment and that when I talked to Natural Resources Minister Jim Carr here's Carr a little clip of Carr sounding like he basically knows he's he's not going to be able to avoid some tough days ahead
5: these uh, issues are by their very nature controversial uh, there are some people who want to leave the oil in the ground Uh, There are other people who want to take it out now with minimum regulation. Mm -hmm. And then there is a a large majority of Canadians in between uh, who would agree with us that good projects should go ahead Mm -hmm. and environmental sustainability should be part of the process. Uh, But you're not going to satisfy everybody on these decisions. And this is the tension between making decisions that will have impact for many, many years, but made at a time when political controversy and challenges are immediate. Hmm. And that happens from time to time, and it's the governments who have the vision to make the tough decisions, and then who have the capacity to explain to Canadians why they're doing it, uh, that really, I think, distinguishes uh, visionary decision-making from uh, just a political reaction to a moment.
0: So, John, tension seems to be the word for the whole debate around these uh, pipelines, around energy, and around global warming.
2: Yeah, right. And so, you know, keep in mind that CAR has major policy to deliver in 2018 on revamping the National Energy Board and the Environmental Act, Assessment Act, and more than that, it's it's, it's far-reaching stuff.
0: Okay, so only one part of a very full liberal agenda in the months ahead. Interesting to get a sense of how they expect to manage it all. Thank you very much, John. And and people can read your work online as well? Yep, it's on Maclean's website. Okay, so check out Macleans.ca or pick up the latest edition of McLean's magazine. All right, coming up after the break, it was the rise of the backbench and a surprise winner at this year's Parliamentarian of the Year Awards. welcome back to mclean's on the hill i'm cormac mcsweeney parliament hill bureau chief for city news and rogers radio this week McClain's handed out the hardware for the best of the best in the house of commons that's right it was the 10th edition of the parliamentarian of the year awards and it was a pretty big year joining me now to talk about it is Maclean's associate editor, Nick Taylor-Vasey, who made the trip all the way up from Toronto to be here in Ottawa to help hand out the awards. Thanks very much for being here, Nick. Thanks for having me, Cormac. Okay, so before we get into who won, let's talk a little bit about the process because this is not some sort of like panel of McClane's journalists who decide who gets to win an award.
6: That's right. One day a year, uh, we celebrate MPs based on uh, MPs actually voting for each other. Uh, So you're right. It's not the McLean's editorial staff who decide who's best and who's worst and who's somewhere in the middle. It's MPs who actually cast ballots. And this year, um, a couple hundred of MPs actually participated.
0: All right. So let's get to the winners now because it was it was a very interesting result this year. Normally, we see at least one or two big name cabinet ministers or party leaders uh, get one or two of the awards Usually, the Parliamentarian of the Year award goes to somebody who's a well-known figure in politics. This year, it was like the rise of the backbench.
6: Yeah, that's right. I mean, Parliamentarians of the Year in the past have been people like John Baird, Ralph Goodale, uh, Elizabeth May, after she was elected in 2011. It's
0: Thomas Mulcair Tom Thomas well. Mulcair
6: last year. And um, this year, there was a little bit of the rise of the backbench in the slate of winners.
0: So who did take home some of the awards? who were some of these backbenchers that really rose to the occasion? Well
6: you have uh, the Rising star award going to Joël Lightbound who's the parliamentary secretary to the Minister of Finance uh, someone who's only been an MP for for two years he's in his 20s and a couple years ago he you know he wasn't in politics and and look at him now sort of um, but he you know he's he's not a cabinet minister he's the parliamentary secretary to one um, you had Scott Reed win the award for civic engagement. Um, Scott Reid is a Conservative MP from Eastern Ontario. Um, He's spent his career on the backbench, even when the Conservatives were in government. He's also been elected with huge pluralities, and uh, there's a very good case for him winning this award because he reaches out to his constituents uh, quite regularly, but also not a cabinet minister.
0: All right, and then we have hardest working is Kevin Lamoureux, which... If you're really into politics and you watch CPAC, you'll know his face because he's always up talking in the House of Commons. Uh, Best represents constituents, conservative uh, Shannon Stubbs, and... The best orator is not exactly somebody who's not well known in politics, but not exactly a party leader or cabinet minister. Uh, It's Nathan Cullen. He did try to become party leader once running for the NDP leadership. Uh, But he talked to me a little bit after the awards about what it means to see so many backbenchers being rewarded at this year's ceremony.
3: I don't know. I think it's great. I mean, I'm looking at the people recognized who maybe don't make the evening news every night. But, I, but we know them as quality people. We know them as incredibly diligent and hard-working, and I think it's your colleagues standing up and saying, we, we recognize you, and it's not about your status or your, the size of your limousine as a minister. It's about these other qualities, and I think it's great. I really do. I, I think it shows the Parliament's uh, a group of independently-minded people. We don't have to all march in one direction and just support those who always get support.
0: So Nick, this was the 10th year, and to make sure that you had 10 awards for the 10th year, there were two new awards that were added to the list. You did mention one of them already, the Civic Engagement Award, which was handed out to Conservative Scott Reid. What was the other award?
6: So the other award was actually the result of a crowdsourcing effort on our part uh, to MPs. We asked them if they could create a new award, which one would they create, what would they call it? And uh, several MPs suggested award an award to uh, honor mentorship so we created the best mentor award and this year it went to a uh, longtime mp a uh, veteran liberal judy scrow
0: now one award that i like every year is the most collegial award and the reason why i like it is because in politics things can get so nasty sometimes and you just have people at each other's throats and yet You always have that shining light, that person who can really bring sides together or is just a smiling face when (laughs) everyone else is just red-faced and grimacing and angry with each other. Uh, So who took home the award this year?
6: So this year the winner was an East Coaster uh, longtime Liberal MP, uh, Roger Kuzner, known for uh, smiling a lot around the parliamentary precinct. Uh, in uh, reading poetry into the record enhancer every year at Christmas uh, and and generally just being a good guy.
0: And you know it's 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 funny because there's a history of East Coasters winning this award.
6: Yeah this was an award that was sort of jokingly called the Peter Stoffer Award for a number of years. Um, he he won it uh, just about every time uh, he was up for it uh, until the, the last election when he didn't win a seat in parliament. Uh, in fact the only time he didn't win it He was elected Parliamentarian of the Year, uh, and Roger Kuzner won the award that year. So uh, there's a bit of a Nova Scotia monopoly on this award.
0: Yeah, and Kuzner does talk about how it's the East Coast lifestyle and attitude that probably lends to winning this award.
4: Why are you such a nice guy? (laughs) I I think, uh, you know, uh, social is a big part of everybody. Uh, being social is a big part of everybody uh, back east. It's, it's pretty natural to most uh, folks in Atlantic Canada. Uh, but we don't take ourselves all that serious. You can take your job serious, but you don't have to take yourself very serious. And uh, I, I think that sort of uh, uh, lends itself to uh, getting along pretty well with others. So uh, I'm uh, not all that partisan by nature, I, you know, or if I am. Uh, certainly, I, I leave it at the at the door, uh, and um, uh, you, you, there, there's so many in the house that uh, operate like that. Um, you know, I, I I have a lot of respect for people that can think on their feet and give and take and not take it personal.
0: All right. So, Nick, there are two things we haven't discussed yet, and they are the biggest awards of the night, Lifetime Achievement and the Parliamentarian of the Year. So Lifetime Achievement, I have to admit, I wasn't familiar with the winner this year because this woman came well before my time in covering politics, uh, but she was with the Pierre Trudeau government uh, back in the day.
6: That's right. Yeah. So we reached back into the, the 70s and 80s um, to give the award this year to a, a, really a trailblazing feminist in the first Trudeau's era, uh, Monique Beijing. Um, she was the minister of health responsible for the Canada Health Act that was passed in 1984. And she's continued to be active, both uh, advocating for more women in politics and talking about health care uh, to the to this day.
0: And she was a cabinet minister under the Pierre Trudeau government, and you had the chief of staff to Pierre's son, Justin Trudeau, handing out the award to her.
6: Yeah, I mean, it was sort of a nice moment that the chief of staff to, to Justin Trudeau, Katie Telford, uh, who herself is a huge advocate for women in politics, was able to introduce someone from, from really another era. Um, and, and the speech that followed, I think, didn't disappoint. It was a lot of fun to listen to Ms. Beijing, uh talk.
0: Yeah, Monique Bejean had an amazing passionate speech about women in politics and the issue of harassment definitely popped up. We'll let you listen to just a little bit of that speech.
7: Equality of opportunity and equity. Some observe that it's now switching, switching to equality of outcomes. Those concepts, metaphors like breaking through the glass ceiling, do not address the roots of many deeply rooted social problems, such as sexual abuses and harassment. Behind each of these equality objectives, man, capital M, stands at the norm. I'm not interested to becoming equal to men. I want the roots of patriarchy to be addressed. As the late French feminist philosopher Françoise Collin wrote, equality is a principle of assimilation, not a concept of social transformation.
0: So if you want to listen to more of that speech, you can check it out on Maclean's And now for the big award of the night, Parliamentarian of the Year, this was a bit of a shocker.
6: Yeah, so typically this award goes to a cabinet minister or a party leader who has had an enormous impact on politics that year. Uh, Somebody who almost everybody can recognize, uh, a household name. Uh, This year, the award went to a first-term Conservative MP from Alberta, somebody who is his party's deputy critic for foreign affairs. Uh, His name was Garnet Jennings.
0: Not one a lot of people would recognize.
6: I think the room was fairly surprised.
0: <laughs> even even Garnet Jenis himself was surprised to win this award. I spoke to him uh, shortly after the ceremony. Garnet Jenis, you're the you're the big winner of the night. How does it feel? Uh, well, I'm very surprised. Uh, grateful for the honor and uh, uh, congratulations to everybody else. Did you did you have any idea that you would be winning the Parliamentarian of the Year award tonight? Uh no. Um they they told me beforehand to think about having a two to three minute speech ready, so as the award started to unfold I was trying to figure out what that meant since others weren't giving speeches. But uh <laughs> other than that, uh I I would have had no expectation of this at all. Now Nick, Garnagenis is a name that I think will have a lot of people sort of just googling where he's come from, what he's done, why was he chosen by his colleagues as the Parliamentarian of the Year? Tell us a little bit about this guy. So there are a couple of
6: reasons that uh, his colleagues may have have noticed him and may have uh, voted him Parliamentarian of the Year. Um, One is that he talks a lot in the House of Commons. Uh, A lot of people know Kevin Lamoure, the Liberal MP from Winnipeg, as uh, the man who is the most loquacious MP in Parliament. He has spoken more than 400,000 words into Hansard since the last election. But Garnet Genis is not too far behind him. Those two are far and away uh, above the the third place, the fourth place, all the way down to the 338th place MP uh, when it comes to speaking in the House. So um, he gets up on a lot of issues. People seem to respect what he has to say about those issues. Um, He's a fairly compassionate MP. Um, He once wrote for Macleans.ca, in fact, about assisted dying legislation, uh, a long, thoughtful piece. Um, People may also be impressed by the fact that he once actually delivered his wife's baby uh, based on advice from her and advice from uh, people over the phone who who know how to do that sort of thing.
0: So definitely amazing to see a backbencher like Garnet Genis win this award. What, what could be next for him, Nick, after winning the Parliamentarian of the Year Award? There is nothing else, is yeah, there? Yeah,
6: you're really on top of the mountain at that point. But uh, after the awards, I did ask him, you know, how are you going to top this? And he said, well,
0: sitting in cabinet in 2019 would be pretty nice. I'm sure some of the uh, those fellow liberal colleagues who were in the room that night would uh, say, th- those are fighting words. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, Nick, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time coming here to talk to us about the Parliamentarian of the Year Awards. And we look... Forward to seeing who wins next year. Oh, I'll be back. All right, and make sure to check out Macleans.ca if you want to see uh, the full list of winners from the Parliamentarian of the Year Awards and some of the videos with those winners, as well as that amazing Lifetime Achievement Awards speech from Monique Bijan. That's it for this week's episode. For more of your politics and power, join us next week on The Hill.